Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, good afternoon. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Ms. Maria Yuchevska is a communication specialist with versatile international experience. Her education in linguistics, culture studies, and international affairs, combined with years of living abroad, makes her point of view unique and comprehensive. Ms. Yuchevska has worked for the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies since 2014, where she serves as associate director. In her scholarly work, she is specifically interested in propaganda. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, this is a very important uh, week for um, all the Poles around the world because this week uh, uh, befells the 80th um, anniversary of the deportations of the Poles um, to Siberia during the Second World War. Uh, this is an important thing to talk about, in my opinion, because uh, we tend to focus on many atrocities of World War II that were taking place in Europe, but we often forget about people who were deported to the European parts of Russia, but also beyond the worlds to the Asian part of Russia, and many of them didn't survive this operation of relocation and I think that at least what we owe them is to remember about them, what they have been through and to simply remember that beyond the comfort of peaceful times uh, of our own time they may, there might also happen a different time and I think it's very important to remember so that uh, we can be wary and avoid similar happenings in the future. First of all, I need to come back a little bit um, to history of Europe and to the eve of the Second World War because the whole tragedy of Polish deportations started with Ribbentrop Molotov Pact. On August, signed on August 23, 1939. This pact uh, included a secret, a secret clause uh, which established the modus operandi between the Soviets and the Germans after uh, a possible dismemberment of Poland. It read, in the event of a territorial and political rearrangement of the areas belonging to the Polish state, the spheres of influence of Germany and the USSR shall be bounded approximately by the line of the rivers Nara, Vistula, and Sun. 
The question of whether the interests of both parties may deserve all the maintenance of an independent Polish state and how such a state should be bounded can only be definitely determined in the course of further political developments. In any event, both governments will resolve this question by means of a friendly agreement. So even before the World War II started, the fate of Poles inhabiting Poland was partly decided. Here we can see the, um, in the uh, right bottom corner, you can see the signatures under the secret clauses that um, sealed fate of more than uh, six million Poles. And indeed, um, the German attack on Poland took place on September 1st, 1939. Um, Poles were completely unprepared for the, uh, for the attack uh, conducted by way of Blitzkrieg, which was an innovation in military technique. And they were very quickly um, conquered when the Polish army was um, in the middle of regrouping, hoping to um, move farther away from the western border and to be able to regroup and face the Germans, they were attacked on um, September 17th um, by the Soviets. The attack on Poland um, of the USSR was prompted partly by the inactivity of Polish allies, um, the Britain and France, who, even though they formally in line with the alliance signed with Poland, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> who on, on 3rd September declared war on Germany, they nevertheless failed to intervene in any military way. So the Soviets uh, knew they had a free hand in Poland and they complied with the secret clause of um, the Ribbentrop Molotov Pact. Here you can see a joint um, Soviet and German um, Soviet and German um, military parade in Brest-Litovsk on September 22nd. Um, this is very interesting to see the pictures from the parade because at times it is claimed that this parade has never happened, uh, but luckily um, internet has a long memory and photos of nearly everything can be found. So as you can see on the map, um, Poland was partitioned between Germany and the Soviet Union. Uh, the western part of Poland was divided into two zones. Uh, the part in, in uniform brown was incorporated to Third Reich, uh, while the striped part uh, was to remain a um, German protectorate in occupied Europe, it was called general government, uh, and it had a bit different uh, conditions of treatment for the Poles. However, in both um, formerly Polish parts, um, the conditions for the Polish populace were miserable. However, we're not going to discuss this now, we're going to focus on a less known part, the Soviet part, uh, which was governed in a bit different way. In the Soviet occupied zone, um, the um, Soviets were doing their best to keep the semblance of legality of what they were doing. So officially they 
they were not attacking Poland officially, they came to the rescue of um, the peoples of Western um, Belarusia and Western Ukraine, who, um, in face of the collapse of the Polish state, um, were um, helpless. So they re required help from the uh, Brotherly Soviet Union uh, to keep um, to keep their safety and to ensure the administrative structure of the um, collapsed Polish state. So um, the um, Soviets made sure that um, it looks as if they were coming to the rescue. And for this reason, the changes that um, they were introducing in their part uh, were more gradual than the changes that were taking place in the German occupied part. And um, they were uh, more gradual. So the Poles at the beginning um, were confused about the aim of uh, why the Soviets are coming, because it was not at all clear whether they're coming as allies to, um, to um, help Poles against the Germans. There was a lot of Russian propaganda saying that actually the Soviet troops are invading, are not invading, they're coming to the help of the Poles. Meanwhile, the propaganda circulated in other languages than Polish called on the local ethnic minorities to raise against the Polish lords in line with, um, with, um, with the concept of class struggle uh, that the Soviets wanted to um, inflame in that um, region. On October 22, 1939, both in Western Ukraine and Western Belarus, a plebiscite was held. The aim of the plebiscite was to choose uh, the Polish representatives to the uh, national assemblies of those regions uh, of Western Ukraine and Western Belarus, who were subsequently to vote uh, in order to decide whether they are going to join the Soviet Union or not. Uh, and naturally, when such a voting took place, uh, such a voting of representatives took finally place in November, uh, uh, on November 1st and 2nd in uh, Moscow, uh, the people who were, um, who were the representatives of Western Ukraine and Western Belarus in line with the plebiscite, they voted for those parts, uh, those former parts of Poland uh, joining USSR. So on top of, uh, on the veneer, it all looked legal. Well, there's, there used to be Poland, now it's occupied. The people chose their representatives and the representatives decided that they do want their lands to belong to um, the Soviet Union. And lo and behold, um, this is how Poles um, who used to inhabit those lands became the citizens of the Soviet Union. Um, naturally, um, the situation of that part of Poland uh, was a little more complex than of the western part uh, because um, there were many ethnic minorities inhabiting that part of Poland. Uh, so, um, the, um, of course, nationality is a modern concept, uh, so I will not get into that now. Uh, nevertheless, it needs to be said that 
um, in that uh, in that um, part of Poland, which constitute almost half of Polish territory, uh, the Poles were um, not a domineering um, a, were not a domineering group. Other groups, such as Belarusians and Ukrainians, were also numerous. Uh, so uh, the Soviets, when overtaking those lands, faced um, a possibility of introducing revolutionary struggle through inflaming ethnic differences, and this is precisely what they did. From the very beginning of, um, of the Soviet rule in that part, uh, Polish um, um, elites, because Poles were most um, ethnically conscious for the longest time in that area, and they often formed intellectual elites, as well as uh, landed elites. So the Poles were being arrested, um, notably the, the members of uh, not only of the military forces, but also of the forces that used to defend um, the border in that part, um, as well as uh, landowners. We have memories of memoirs of um, landowners from that area uh, who remember that they had their uh, former, um, how to put it, they used to own villages, so the people from villages were coming to them to see them in, for instance, Lviv, to ask what they are supposed to do if the Soviets come and um, collect information on whether the um, villagers were treated well uh, or not by their landlord. So um, the landlord in question, uh, Princess Lanskorojska, said that they just have to say the truth. So she got stellar reviews from her villagers, and this is how she found herself on the proscription list for deportation, because she got such a stellar review that um, obviously her behavior was completely um, against the popular propaganda about um, the Polish lords exploiting the, po the Polish peasants and peasants of all other ethnicities. So um, increasingly, um, um, ever, ever uh, since September, um, ever since September 17, uh, 1939, that the terror in the Soviet-occupied zone was increasing, but it was happening gradually. The arrests were not uh, taking place right away. They took place after a few months. People were uh, were not um, initially. People were not taken. Uh, away in large groups, only here and there, and of course men had to hide. Uh, but um, suddenly, in February 1940, um, the operation of mass deportation was organized, and this was, they came, and on that one night, they deported hundreds of thousands of people from, um, from the eastern um, what also needs to be mentioned here is the Cutting Forest Massacre. It's a major element um, important at the beginning of uh, the Second World War. Namely, um, the Soviets captured um, um, Polish officers uh, who were um, 
who became the prisoners of war. And uh, suddenly they, they were arrested, uh, they were taken to three prisoners camps in Starobielsk, um, Ostashkov and Kozielsk. Uh, the conditions were fine, um, their families were allowed to send them packages and letters, uh, the letters came back, uh, and suddenly uh, nobody heard from them. The letters stopped, stopped coming, um, nobody could locate the officers, and this, the fate of um, approximately 22,000 um, Polish POWs was um, a bone of contention in the contacts between Poland and Russia, even after Russia became um, the ally of the United States and Great Britain, and um, by virtue of fate, the ally of our allies as far as Poland is concerned. So uh, the, the fate of the POWs was a burning issue and it also influenced the fate of the deported families, but I will talk about that later. Uh, the picture you can see here is the um, picture from uh, from um, exhumation of the Polish POWs whose fate uh, became uh, more clear later on uh, in the course of the war, but uh, we will talk about it later. So as far as the total number of deported uh, is concerned, it is very difficult to estimate this number. Uh, according to um, the lowest possible estimate, it is about 340,000 uh, people. Uh, but this data is only compiled on the basis of the documents uh, of rail, railroad and KVD records. So. Possibly this is only a part of all the records on all the deported people. Um, higher estimations were conducted um, by the um, emigre, um, by the emigre milieus here in America and in Great Britain after the war. Uh, the way they were um, estimating um, the, the number of the deported um, was they were either counting the number of people per carriage and estimating how many carriages could there, there could be in a given transport, or they were relying on the information of friends and kin who were reporting here and there on who, who was taken where and how. So the number of, um, the number of people deported uh, remains an open question until today. And establishing it correctly would require a lot of field research also in the area of the former USSR. So this is a, a topic of research that is very time-consuming and can possibly take years to establish. And of course the willingness of uh, state powers, uh, state authorities to cooperate with Polish authorities. So this is a more a sophisticated question, especially now that the USSR is no longer there and there is no central authority who could say yes or no uh, to research. Uh, the map I have here, uh, which cites the number, the, the possible number of people deported, comes from a source from the 1980s, 
which I consider fairly um, persuading. Um, so it gives it the total number of approximately 900,000 people deported. Um, yes? Of, well, of course, but my source was from. Like, <laughs> it was published in your source. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah, precisely. Otherwise, it sounds like this map is from like. Yeah, you're, you're right. Of course, Professor Hodakiewicz is is the oh, the expert. It's important for methodology. Sorry, mm -hmm. it's very yeah. Important. So the, there were four waves of deportations and. Um, we are. We have the anniversary of the of of the first deportation this week, and this was definitely um, the most unexpected event in the in the lives of those people. Um, on on top of that, it was taking place in horrible weather conditions because the temperatures at that point were at uh, minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so that's a low temperature even for a regular train um, train road and not necessarily one in a cattle carriage. So uh, um, the subsequent waves of deportations uh, were, were meant at um, taking away from the former Polish uh, lands all the people who could become the source of opposition to the new Soviet power or the source of um, preservation of the Polish culture in those lands. So these were not only uh, men who were breadwinners of the families, um, of course apart from the men who were arrested earlier, uh, but also women, um, elderly people and uh, small children. In fact, the percentage of children arrested, at least in that first uh, wave of deportation, uh, was approximately uh, 44%. Um, and those children are partly the reason for this presentation, because I, I think that what happened to them, if they survived, um, having to remember all those traumas, um, is unimaginable to us nowadays. We lived, we live in such a sheltered uh, reality, and our um, everyday problems of the internet age are so far removed from the tragedy of all those people um, that I just wanted to mention them at least and and to talk about their fate. So those people uh, were mostly families of Polish foresters, Polish military and civilian settlers. And from um, from the uh, again from memoirs, we also know that um, <coughs> they at least partly were um, landowners. They were deported to northern Russia, Komi Republic, and Western Siberia beyond the Urals. On April 13, uh, we had uh, um, further wave of deportations. This time, the families of Katyn Forest massacre were deported. And um, this is worth mentioning because the way the addresses of those uh, families were assembled uh, was particularly clever. And namely, the only reason why, um, why the Polish officers um, interned in those three camps were allowed to write home 
was to collect the addresses to which they were writing to make sure that all their families are taken care of. What is interesting, the order to deport the, um, the Poles to the East was, um, was given in December 1939. Meanwhile, the definite decision to dispose of the 20, 22,000 Polish POWs um, in, from the internment camps was taken only in March 1940. So, those people, even the, if that decision was not taken and by some miracle they would have returned home, they would have returned to an empty home because all their wives, all their children or all their elderly parents would have been already away um, far beyond the Soviet um, western border. Um, so, um, in April, on April 13th, the families of cutting forest massacre victims and the so-called socially dangerous elements um, were deported and almost entirely to Kazakhstan. Uh, so the socially dangerous elements are any people who are um, either financially independent enough or intellectually independent enough to oppose the Soviet power. Um, on the night of uh, 28 to 29 June 1940, um, another wave of deportations deported people who um, were not initially the inhabitants of the um, of the area occupied by the Soviets. Uh, they were the refugees from the refugees, so from the German occupied part. Because when Poland was um, divided between Germany and uh, and the USSR, um, um, a part of Polish um, citizens decided to seek refuge in the Russian part, and many of them were Jews. Uh, and on May and June 1941, um, another wave of deportation took place. Um, it was the cleansing of border um, lands and of the Baltic regions, so Poles were deported from that part um, farther to um, farther to um, the um, east of the USSR and um, this um, deportation was taking place in particularly dramatic conditions because in the meantime the um, German-Soviet war broke out so all the tra trains moving eastwards were being bombed so if um, an echelon transporting echelon is a line of cattle carriages uh, transporting Polish deportees was incidentally put on fire. Nobody was uh, making any effort to put the fire up. They would just disentangle the carriage and, and let the people inside burn. And the cattles, the, the carriages were um, closed from the outside with barbed wire, so people who were inside couldn't go out. The conditions um, of arrest and, and deportation can be seen here. A part of my inspiration comes from the book um, War Through Children's Eyes. And um, this book um, presents the accounts of uh, the conditions in the deported places in the letters of children uh, who are written after, um, after they were 
um, evacuated from the Soviet Union. And this, um, this is a drawing um, of a boy who was at the time 12 um, from Stanislavov, uh, which describes how the Bolsheviks were chasing away the people um, who were trying to approach the, um, the carriages containing the deportees. Because what was, what was happening uh, was that um, the, the conditions um, in February were terrible. It was, um, it was very frosty. And, and this was to the misery of the Polish inmates also in concentration camps in, in, in the German part of, of the occupied Poland. Uh, but the, 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 the people who were arrested uh, didn't expect it at all because the subsequent waves of, the, of deportees, they kind of knew that this might be coming for them, so people were more prepared than this first wave. And the arrests would typically take place early in the morning, so around 4 a.m. So this is, this is the moment when, when you are woken up in the middle of your sleep, you don't expect anything, you are the most discombobulated, and this was done on purpose. People were given between 15 uh, minutes and 2 hours um, to pack up, but typically it was between 15 and 30 minutes. And um, oftentimes um, they were not informed where they were going, they were just told to pack up. So um, it only depended on the benevolence of the people who were arresting them, whether they are going to take the winter clothing or not, whether they're going to take food or not. Usually the most um, precious family possessions uh, were confiscated by the people who came to do the arrest. And this is um, preserved in those children's memories, um, how usually there is a, a group, uh, one political commissar and two NKVD soldiers coming, telling people to wake up, searching the house for alleged weapons, um, people are held at gunpoint for two hours and then they're given 15-30 minutes to pack and they are loaded on, on cattle cars usually and transported to the point of um, uh, where all, all the people were supposed to meet before um, being loaded on the um, cattle trains. Oh no, come back. Okay, so um, here we come to the, to the question of the number of people deported because officially the, the, um, when the rules for the deportation were um, um, written down on paper, there was supposed to be no more than 25 people per carriage. Uh, each of them were, was supposed to receive 800 grams of bread and a warm soup once per day. Um, there was also supposed to be a um, carriage with um, medical provisions and medical care and uh, water for everybody to travel. In reality, the carriages were uh, overcrowded. When you go through the accounts um, of children, rarely do you encounter 25. More likely, they mention 50, more than 50, up to 70 people. Their carriage, so this is completely overcrowded. 
uh, very primitive. There is no water or food. Uh, one outlet in the floor to relieve yourself. If people were better organized, they would improvise some cover um, from a blanket or from whatever else they could to um, um, to shield the space. However, um, most of them were insufficiently uh, equipped for this voyage, so uh, blankets were um, far more uh, valuable than to provide uh, cover for um, for this kind of relief. So uh, we have this uh, terrible overcrowding infestation with lice and other vermin. Um, not enough water to go around. So people, if they of course were allowed, they would try to scoop snow from uh, from the rooftop of the carriage and melt it so that and they have at least a tiny bit of water to drink. Um, if somebody died on the road, which was not infrequent, uh, the train was not stopping, so what they could do with the cadavers was just wait until the next stop. Um, and of course, the, the, the first victims of such voyage are, um, are infants, children and elderly. What was especially painful uh, as a memory to many people uh, was um, children asking for water because there was just not enough and children couldn't understand it. And of course, um, it's hard to imagine how mothers with infants felt new knowing that the infants are dying uh, of hunger. Um, so this is how this was happening uh, for the first wave of deportees. Um, Again, the memories of Princess um, Lanskorowska mentioned that people, when they were closed in those cars and waiting for um, deportation, because sometimes they would wait in the railway station for days, and still uh, people who were, uh, who were trying to approach the carriages and give the people inside some bread or some water or whatever other possession, uh, were chased away. There's one dramatic account of a mother who managed to pass her infant through the window to her to her mother waiting outside, and unfortunately, the um, she the grandmother was spotted and she had to give the infant back. So this is what this was like for the poles. They were singing religious hymns. It was already Lent, so they were sits. Uh, singing Gorzkie Żale, which is like a um, devotional Polish song um, remembering the Passion of Christ. So this is how they felt. And this is where they, and this is where they traveled. Depending on the place of um, deportation, they faced difficulties related to either a very severe continental climate, especially in the northern parts, or the heat um, climate of the Russian steppes, uh, which was especially painful in Kazakhstan, uh, where 40% of the total number of deportees found themselves. Um, so uh, you can see um, in this map, uh, the striped places indicate the places of deportation, the um, red Red spots indicate um, the um, Gulag prisons. 
However, when we're talking about the civilian population, they mostly were deported to the places of labor, but not to prison camps. It was mostly men who found themselves in, in uh, Gulag. Meanwhile, the families with women and small children were sent to those Soviet republics, uh, which were not very popular with Soviet themselves because of the uh, hard living conditions. And uh, they were just dumped in the middle of nowhere um, and redistributed in the surrounding countryside um, to just join uh, whoever conducted the miserable existence there and um, to work with them. Um, so, in, there are many sources available in Polish about the experiences. Can you go back to the... Yes, sure. What's the name of this area? It's uh, it's Yakutia, the lagers of Yakutia. Oh. Oh, yeah. Alright. So in in the in, in Polish there's plenty of literature containing the memories from those times available. Uh, but one of the names, the Inhuman Land, uh, which is also a title of the book, um, is the let's say the nickname for um, for the areas of Russia and for the for generally the experience of the deported people in those times. Uh, so here you can see what the um, railway carriage transporting people for two, three or four weeks in the middle of winter looked like. Uh, on the left side you see children with a piece of bread. Um, then you see the um, people inside of the train who as you can see are predominantly women and children and here you can see two girls peeping out of the window to just double check where they are. Sometimes um, the closing of the windows was enforced so they couldn't even look out and take, um, and take a breath. Of course, there were different difficulties on, on the road, apart from starvation and vermin and horrible hygienic conditions. Um, and also, the external temperature was either freezing cold or boiling, uh, either freezing cold or boiling hot, depending on the season of the year in which the deportation was taking place. In, in either case, the casualties followed. So um, here we also have to imagine um, that um, this is uh, people who were deported were the, the culture creating stratum of Polish society. So these were usually people not used to um, hard physical labor. And even if uh, among them were also um, the so-called rich peasants, or um, foresters or colonizers, those were still people who uh, did not experience the primitive conditions of human existence um, that were widespread at that point in the Soviet Union. Uh, so um, I always think about women who, who just find themselves suddenly in the middle of a step or in the forest where um, where snow is 
hide your waist and you have possibly two, three, four kids with you and maybe even an elderly mother and you are the only person in the age which allows to work, which means you are the only person who gets the food rations. So what do you do? And uh, this nickname, the inhuman land, is interesting because now we live in, again, I was saying this before, but to me it's very interesting how sheltered become the conditions of our life and how harsh the conditions of their life were. So uh, there were different difficulties depending on the climate in a given part. Um, some claim that the harsh conditions in the northern parts of Russia uh, were better because at least um, people were spared the uh, rampant diseases uh, which were happening in more uh, in definitely warmer climate of the steppe. However, in, Kaz in Kazakhstan in turn, um, the, temp the amplitude of temperatures um, can be very uh, large, so you can have a very frosty night and a very hot day, so it's hard to say whether you prefer to have it frosty all year or just frosty at night. Um, all in all, we, when we hear deportations, we rarely think about what, what it entails. And, and I wanted to focus in this lecture on what it really entailed. It entailed facing not only a completely different way of existence in terms of uh, sophistication, but, but also the most basic adversities of nature, such as climate, about which we no longer think. But when you are told to pack within 15 minutes and nobody tells you the destination, you find yourself suddenly in, in a climate for which you are completely unprepared. Um, so, um, as a rule, the um, Polish deportees were just distributed among the uh, villages and they were dealing with um, the trades that were appropriate for a given area. Whether this was uh, whether this was uh, uh, working with timber or um, or uh, joining a um, fish harvesting collective or uh, joining um, farmers in the steppe or um, joining some villages close to the industrial centers um, where people work. Um, Poles were simply jo joining the Soviets in their daily life. Um, oftentimes Poles were met with um, um, hostility of the local people who didn't quite differentiate between the Russians and the Poles and saw Polish people as just another type of the oppressive Soviet power who was taking their food away and their, bo and their men and boys to the army. Um, so um, accounts differ because it very much depended, depended on, on the circumstances in the area, but in general the attitude of the local people towards the Polish deportees was uh, not very favorable. And then we have this rule who doesn't work, doesn't eat. In, in many places people were not working in exchange for money, they were working in exchange for food ratios. So you had to fulfill your work quota, which at times was uh, ridiculous. For instance, I remember 
from memories of one of the girls who um, who was unfortunately uh, left with the role of the breadwinner for her household because her mom was too old to work and she had three siblings. She was working in some uh, wool um, wool. Um, wool producing factory and the, the daily quota of uh, of the un, um, um, of, of the initial product from the sheep that you have to put through the in industrial process of carrying was seven tons of wool to carry for a woman per day in in steel baskets so these are the, the working conditions that they were faced with and she's only 15 and she's writing well she had to do that and she doubled in almost everything else to just sustain her family um, then there is another problem related to work most of this work was done in very primitive conditions so there was a lot of casualties due to inadequate tools or, or accidents at work, especially when logging timber is concerned. And uh, here um, we, have, uh, we have also um, a problematic situation of children because um, anybody above the age of 16 was not considered a child. Um, people between 14 and 16 year, year of age, uh, sometimes uh, even between 12 and 16, were considered good for work, for um, a bit less strenuous jobs, but they would still have to leave early in the morning and come back late at night to, um, to work in the woods in the temperature of minus 20, minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. They were not adequately dressed. They had to improvise on the on the spot, um, and uh, no no wonder that um, half of them was actually uh, dead before the end of 1941. Um, they had insufficient food, and this was um, this was due not only um, not only uh, Let's say that the reasons were twofold. At times it was really the ill will of the person who was the administrator of the village. So he didn't really bother about the polls, so he wouldn't bother about their food ratios. But overall, the food provision in the Soviet Union during the war was, was not sufficient even for the locals. Uh, so there are many memories of people related to uh, what they were forced to eat and how, how people, even though um, they were abhorred by the things that they ate, they would still eat um, leftovers from, from the bins, um, rats, cats, dogs, small, uh, small birds. Um, of course, they had to be very um, entrepreneurial in terms of finding food because, uh, I'm sorry, um, the feeling of hunger was probably one of the most frequent feelings described by the children and the feeling which uh, appears in every account. So um, sometimes nature would come to their help and people would, uh, would eat, um, would supplement their diet with whatever they could find in the forest. And you can find 
different berries and, and mushroom and uh, you can even hunt in, in the forest during the summer. Um, another important uh, element of the diet were the needles of the pines which were collected and dried because in winter a tea made of those needles was a source of vitamin C uh, which um, helped um, to battle the deficiency of, uh, of uh, vitamin C which led to, uh, to diseases. Um, and of course, there, there were disastrous hygienic conditions um, related to the primitive lifestyle, but also in generally to, um, to the low culture of the area um, and um, the, the overall desperate condition. Um, so um, lack of hygiene and how painful this is was also an element of children's accounts. Uh, as well as rampant diseases uh, related to also lack of appropriate medication and medication facilities or um, you are reading a blood curdling accounts of how uh, a sick person had to go 30 kilometers to, to hospital so no no wonder they the survival rate was not high yeah so i'm interested to die circumstances are they there are mentions in, in the accounts which I read um, specifically for the purpose of this, this lecture which focuses on children. There are mentions of children who write that they left place X and Y and that they were afraid to go to the station because they heard about cannibals living in the area. But uh, I haven't uh, read any systematic account regarding cannibalism in in, in regards to the sojourn of uh, the Polish deportees in uh, in the areas of the Soviet Union. Um, I wanted to read to read to brief accounts just to give you an idea of what it felt and what it was like, um, which are taken from children's. Um, children's essays that were written for um, at the request of their teachers once they have left the Soviet Union were evacuated from the Soviet Union. Um, what I also found interesting was the irony which uh, transpired in many of those accounts even though uh, these must have been uh, the essays of 15 year old children the moment they were written so at the moment they were experiencing that they were maybe 12 and 13 and still they were able to perceive the irony of the fate. So the first one reads, um, it was very hard to get bread. There were such lines that you had to get in line at night to get a kilo of bread. Mama and my sister was three days and she, away and she began to come back and the road was hard, the nights cold, they had to sleep on the step there were no houses there, wasn't even a place to hide from the rain. But again, at noon it was hot, so their clothes smoked from the sun. They didn't have anything to drink because the bottle broke and the water poured out. They came home at night tired and ragged. They didn't have a place to lie down because there were no beds, only clay stoves, so they slept on that. There were very many flea beetles, fleas and ants because there was no tub, so you could wash somewhere. 
and most of all there wasn't any soap. That's how it was in our kolkhoz, in that Russian paradise, without bread, without clothes, without soap. And the other excerpt. When mother was bedridden and only brother went to work, I wasn't allowed to stay by my bedridden mother and was forced to work. They only yelled, hoida na robotu, out to work, and one couldn't hear anything else fall from their lips, always the same thing. The holidays I had in Siberia, I will probably never have anything like this. There wasn't even a morsel of bread at home. Only misery and poverty looked into our windows. When I went out to beg, sometimes I brought back a morsel of bread and sometimes not even that. My longing was to put a good morsel of bread into my mouth. When we were riding south, we saw people rumbling about the station and black from hunger. In our oblast, the NKVD building served as the representative building. It served as the propaganda building. We really don't find the words to describe these experiences in Russia. It is impossible either to describe or tell. Only that person can understand it who felt it himself on his own skin. Otherwise, no one will understand. The language of those reports, um, reports were originally written in Polish, but they were translated in such a way as to um, mirror the, the language of the children, because being taken away from school at the age of 10 to 12, whatever they could speak in Polish, um, they mixed with Russian, and, and sometimes they forgot about the grammar, and um, uh, the translator was trying to put that into English, that's why it sounds a little awkward. Uh, so what saved <coughs> some of the Polish deportees, because we, we don't really know how many left, but um, a small, small percentage was saved, was saved by um, the reinstation of Polish-Soviet diplomatic relations, which naturally were <coughs> non-existent the moment the USSR attacked Poland. Uh, so the moment Germany attacked USSR, um, the, um, there happened a rapprochement encouraged by the British between the Polish government and the USSR government. Naturally, the uh, fate of the, um, of the Polish POWs was one of the burning issues. Um, in those diplomatic relations, but um, in, in, let's say, a creative discussion that took place, um, the, um, Stalin uh, agreed to the um, amnesty for the Polish um, inside, who were present inside of the area of USSR, and for the creation of the Polish army in USSR, which was initially to be entirely formed in USSR of uh, Polish soldiers, uh, but after a number of difficulties and obstacles that the Soviets were um, doing to the Poles uh, in the process of the creation of the army, General Anders, who himself used to be a prisoner in, in Lubyanka and was freed as a result of uh, this agreement to form the Polish army, uh, decided to evacuate uh, whatever Polish army he managed to assemble by March 1942, and um, they were evacuated to the um, to the um, British ter territories outside of the USSR, um, but on the border, um, mostly to um, 
what is now Iran. And the uh, evacuation took place between March and September in 1942. Um, however, um, the amnesty was announced earlier and as a result many Poles were able to leave the um, slave labor in the villages where, to which they were relocated in um, in 1940 and in, uh, in, in 1940 and in 1941. So uh, what it looked like was there was amnesty, but you had to find about it on your own. So the news traveled from village to village, from pole to pole, but oftentimes they would be faced with the opposition of the local authorities that didn't like to uh, lose slave labor. So Poles were forced to sign some documents that they are rescinding Polish citizenship or that they um, that they vowed uh, that they obliged themselves to work for one more year in in this place or other. And in many instances, Poles just had to um, escape from the places where and they were working to be able to somehow travel to the places of concentration of the um, Polish army in the USSR. And this is one more harrowing story because people who are destitute are leaving the places where they work, where they are being worked to death to try to reach the, um, the forming Polish army, hoping that in some way they will be able to save themselves. So what was a huge surprise at the beginning for, um, for General Anders was the number of civilians that joined, um, joined the soldiers that he expected to be there. Um, and uh, in the end, uh, more than 100,000 people were evacuated, including 36,000 women and children. So more than one-third evacuated were um, women and children. But if we compare it to the even the lowest um, little probable estimate of 300,000, uh, uh, 340,000 deported, it is still only approximately 10%. Um, so leaving with Anders' army was a chance to survive, and um, the fate of uh, Polish children, especially of Polish orphans abroad, is um, a topic for a separate uh, presentation. And there is a very moving book um, published there is a very moving book published about the fates of the Polish exiles, um, but um, I'm not sure if um, um, I'm not sure if, if it was translated into English. Um, so let's go here. Um, the the lady the story of the book is curious in itself. The lady who wrote it used to be a great Polish film star and internationally known. Then she was. Um, imprisoned by the Germans, then she was imprisoned by the Soviets, and finally when she was freed due to amnesty, she described the fate of the Polish, um, of the Polish orphans uh, in, a, in the book Exiled Children. Um, and uh, in the other picture you see uh, Maharaja, who was a personal friend of uh, Ignacy Paderewski before the war, 
and he um, decided to save Polish children and built a, a village for children in, in his estate in India and persuaded to uh, other Indian aristocrats to chip in for the help for the Polish children. So 5,000 children could be helped in this way. You can see the um, physical condition of children who are leaving the uh, Soviet Union. I would say that those photographs are, um, well, the regularity. You can see what they look like. And uh, what I wanted to read now, just to sum up the lecture, um, is the excerpt from the book about the fates of Polish orphans uh, by Hanka Ordonovna, but also one last excerpt of the family who lived long enough to hear about the amnesty, but uh, you will see what happened to them later. So Hanka Ordonovna writes about the arrival of children into Ashhabad, and she writes the following. Into this Ashhabad night there spilled from the trains a crowd of little paupers from whom everything had been taken away, including their parents' loving hearts, encased in the bodies, frozen under the faraway snows. A station lamp dangled in the gusts of wind, projecting shaded lights onto exhausted, emaciated faces of children. This tragic lot formed a long procession. The children barely dragged their legs, in pairs, misery with disease, hunger with lice, to the awaiting buses. And the last piece from children's accounts is, is um, the account which was very long and, and probably because it cost this child a lot to write about it. So I chose only the, the, final, um, the final piece. The gist of the text is that they hear about the amnesty and they prepare themselves to leave the place where they are. So the family is amassing as much dried bread as they can and mother with one of the children uh, goes for a journey to the neighboring village to sell some of the last possessions that they have to buy more bread and she freezes on the way. So they hear back that she froze and um, the husband has to come back with the body. We all sitting by the stove and saying how we will live now without Mama. I'm sorry. Well, I won't be able to read it. So I suggest maybe that um, you read it uh, for yourselves. Um, unfortunately. I was hoping I would be able to read this, but I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not. <laughs> so I'll just um, leave it for you to read. And um, uh, to sum up, to sum up the, um, the whole problem of the deportations of the Poles, is it's a topic worth researching and worth remembering. And uh, I would like to uh, make sure that um, this small collection of, of uh, reflections of what, what the situation of the deportees was um, stays in your mind and uh, hopefully serves as um, one more 
contribution to the evaluation of what the Second World War was like and who was the aggressor in the war and who was the savior in that war. Thank you. Are there any questions? Yeah? Yes, this is such a you know, timely topic and, and uh, especially now. And I also remember reading our, our mentions of um, how the children uh, went all over the world. They went to um, India. Some also went to parts in Africa. And I also wondered if you came across anything in your research that dealt with the scouting movement, because the Polish scouts apparently were active wherever they went. For example, I know in Africa they had a scouting, Polish scouting organization that was run. Oh, I, I read a very interesting uh, article lately about the restoration of the Polish graves in Africa, in, in the graves of people who came there as, as deportees and, and actually died there because of the overall physical and exhaustion. And I remember that in, in some way the, scout, the Boy Scouting, uh, the scouting organization was, was involved in those activities, but uh, I was not uh, particularly focusing on, on the scouting movement. However, um, um, to be able to leave, to be able to leave the, the the Soviet Union, the the children um, were joining a paramilitary organization, so to say. There was the paramilitary school of Junatze for boys and of junior military volunteers for for girls. And uh, when they managed to enlist with the school, they, they could be evacuated. This is the way that was found to be able to take them out from, from the USSR. But uh, I don't really uh, know the details. What, what is also interesting about um, the evacuation of, of children was that after the war, when the place was sought for them, there weren't actually very many countries who were willing to take in Polish deportees. And as far as I remember, New Zealand, some African countries, and Mexico volunteered to take them in. But there wasn't that many um, countries willing to um, go against the um, victorious Soviet Union in this regard. Are there any other questions? Yes, Dr. Terry? Oh, yes. When I was young, <laughs> yeah, younger, uh, I read a book by a friend of mine at that time. He's deceased now, J.K. Zawadny. You know of him? Yeah, we spoke about him many times a day. Yeah, he, put, he did a book called Death in the Forest, which brought to the American people <clears throat> the Patton Forest Massacre. There is no equivalent, as, as, I, as far as I know, to what you have described today. And I wonder uh, why that is the case. Uh, is it the case that there is no expose of this tragedy that's available to the public in, in the U.S.? Is that right? You mean the Cutting Forest Massacre? No. It's something that, is, that des describes what you talk about oh. that is equivalent to the book I mentioned. Well, uh, 
the the book I mentioned, uh, from which the re the textual evidence uh, in the presentation comes from, is called "The War Through Children's Eyes." It was published in, in the 1980s in Poland. Here, uh, I'm not sure if it was published in America, but at least it is published in English. And this is a review of um, of the accounts of children. Uh, that were available in um, in the Hoover Institution. So the book briefly describes the mechanism of Polish of the deportation of the Poles and the number of people deported and the political um, and the political gist of uh, the operations. And then it gives 120 chosen accounts of of children's papers that describe the. Um, the okay, it's just stop. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows that. Nobody well, knows that. That's why I'm talking about yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> no, this is what I'm suggesting, Maria. That's your assignment. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's what you should do. Yeah. Last question. <gasps> well, I, I just wanted me? to, since we respond to yours, there's a website called uh, Siberia, um, and some of the people, even the ones who are in this area, I think, have also have um, recorded and written um, their uh, experiences when they were deported there as children to Siberia. I don't know that that was. I thought that was pretty widely uh, known, but it may not be. It is not. Um, yeah, so the rule is that the last is really question. You mentioned about yeah. Siberia, mm -hmm. but my question is how far east they were sent? I mean, oh, I think all the way to, uh, let's say, uh, Kamchatka or, uh, oh, yeah, yeah let, no, no. How far. Yeah. You see the, the last. So there were some people who were sent over here. Yeah, I think the far, the farthest place that's, they went to is yeah, that's or right by Kamchatka. Yeah. Oh, the um, that's amazing. This is actually the place of um, of the um, where people were sent to Gulag, not really where they were deported. Yeah. The, the the deportations are in in the striped areas. So the farther they went is here and yeah. here. Okay. But also here. Okay. So on the border with Afghanistan, close to China, close to Mongolia. Well, so the places where nobody wanted to live because of of their remoteness and, and harsh living conditions and lack of job opportunities. Mm. Um, all right. So it was pleasure to talk to you. I'm sorry my voice failed at the last evidence, oh, but dear. I'm only a human being. <laughs>